Welcome to episode 281 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed listening to Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, please consider rating the podcast with five stars. And if you're so inclined, you can also leave a review. Your ratings and reviews help new people find the show. And if you know someone that you think will like Stageworthy, please tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I knew told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. I wanted to take another moment to talk about my Patreon that's supporting my work on a new audio drama. For those that don't know, Patreon is a membership platform that helps people like you support creators. For a monthly subscription fee that goes directly to the artist, you can help a creative like me create something new. For me... I'm taking my subscribers on the entire creation journey for making this new audio drama. Through posts, video, and live streams, my subscribers will come with me for the entire process, from brainstorming to writing to recording right through to the release of the project. And for some subscription levels, I'll even create a special early release version of the project just for them. You can follow along at patreon.com slash you can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And you can find the website with the archive of all 281 episodes at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guests this week are performer, producer, director, designer, and creator Chelsea Haraberta and dramaturg, director, and theater creator Ryan Percival. They joined me to talk about their digital production, Vagabond, coming to this summer's Hamilton Fringe. So you guys are, are working on a show for the the Hamilton Digital Fringe, is that right? Yes, exactly. So it's a digital exclusive series, um, and the production that we're working on is called Vagabond. What can you tell me about Vagabonds? Um, I, I think that the process is really interesting here, where Chelsea and I, as you know, we, we collaborate a lot, and... Chelsea was entering the digital showcase and we started talking about the premises of certain, certain ideas that we wanted to really act on and make concrete. And we, the more we talked, the more we were like, Hey, all right, we have a lot of common themes in the ideas that we want to express. And so we decided to collaborate. And, and you saw the word vagabond of, of, of that thing that comes together. I don't know. Cause like it's, we're, we're talking about like what a vagabond really is and the history of it. And it, it does have multiple meanings and some of them can be kind of mm-hmm. positive and some of them can be negative. Um, so I would say the positive connotation would be like kind of a, a wanderer or a person that's like moving from place to place. Um, so that could be kind of a person of an explorer. But then uh, some people could say that a wanderer could, could be so, or a vagabond could be someone that would be not trusted 
uh, or or uh, some people could even describe them as a rascal. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's why we, we were attracted to that, the, the word vagabond, because it can have that both positive or the negative connotation. Yeah. Um, now, is there a particular of, of those connotations that you, are, you yourselves are more drawn to? I would 100% say that I'm drawn to the, the, the wanderer, the, the person who is not necessarily lost because they aren't in a specific home or don't stay in one place for an extended period of time. Um, how about yourself, Brian? Um, I think considering that the piece that we're, we're really, the themes we're touching on are a lot about belonging. I don't think, that I, I like to gravitate towards the positive connotation mm-hmm. of the word, especially because our show is about sometimes leaving your home to find your belonging. And I think that a lot of people have put a negative stigma on the word and we like the neutral stigma and we like the discovery sure. part of it. Now, the idea for this show, did this exist uh, pre-COVID or is this something that came to you um, after the, the the pandemic started? So this show is something that's been going on for, for a few years now. I guess the concept has been brewing. Yeah. Um, the, the first rendition of, rendition of the show was when I did for Eden at the Hamilton Fringe in the gallery miniseries. So that was a 20 minute production. And I, uh, it was based on my experience of interviewing. And when I met someone from my past, from, uh, from high school who, uh, experienced some mental health issues and ended up, uh, being on the street and had an interaction where at first it was positive, but then they had this kind of, uh, breakdown moment and kind of a, like a schizophrenic, episode and, and were yelling at me and uh, the, the police had to be called because they were getting uh, aggressive in, in a store that was close by. Um, but then when I was being interviewed by the, the police that came to help the situation, they said that he was currently getting treatment and uh, was, was uh, just came out of living on the street and was living in, um, in the forest close by, so actually by Webster's Falls. Um, and he was just offered this mental health treatment. And if I like made any kind of uh, police report, then he would lose the treatment at St. Joseph's Hospital. Um, so after we, we talked and I, and I was speaking with this person, um, I obviously decided not to fill out any kind of report so they could continue their treatment. Um, and then it just so happened about a year later, I was walking around the streets of Hamilton and I bumped into the same person and they were doing a million times better and they had a big smile on their face. And we, we talked again and we, we talked about the last time that we that we saw each other. And uh, they were just saying that they hardly even remember the interaction, but uh, just wanted to, to thank me for for, for just, like taking the, the afternoon to, to speak with him and hang out and uh, kind of just like give that uh, that sort like give a hand over to someone else. Um, And so anyway, we ended up doing an interview and uh, that ended up becoming the transcript for one of the the Hamilton Friends shows, as well as someone else that I met that was experiencing homelessness in Hamilton um, at the Living Rock. Uh, So that's a a shelter that that gives help to youth experiencing homelessness in Hamilton. Um, So then we ended up doing that show and after doing the show that was more of an interactive installation and more of an interview series, 
in a monologue series. I, I did feel like sharing those stories were so powerful. Um, but this time around, he kind of wanted to come come out at it at, at a different perspective, um, still using those interviews as source material. But now now we're going ahead and turning it more into a traditional like, like theater production and doing a, a theater to, to film. Um, but really, those like, interactions that I've had um, throughout my life in Hamilton and growing up in Hamilton, and uh, a lot of my friends that have experienced uh, like that 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 situation, those are that's really the inspiration to this story. Uh, long-winded answer, but it was just a a, 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 a lot of small um, experiences that have added up to this for sure over a bunch of years. If I may, I don't. No, sorry. Yeah, please go ahead. I'm, 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 it'll be short. I just want to say, having dramaturged that piece, it was very community-based and it was very uh, impactful to see how it affected the community and how much Kelsey drew from the community. And we really wanted to continue that theme of using source, using that as source for something a bit more theater-based. Now, in terms of, of, since this is going to be something digital, because things are going to be digital, are you, are you, is the plan to pre-record it and make that available, or will it be live-streamed, or, or how, like, the physical uh, presentation, what's that going to look like? Um, it's going to be live-streamed. Uh, the Hamilton Princess is a showcase, I believe, demands that you give them a version that they stream it for ahead of time that they then stream. Um, I believe the Toronto Fringe is offering a very exciting opportunity where you get to present your show live. I can see that presenting some very unique challenges considering the platform, but I also think that's mm -hmm. really exciting. And I think in this COVID world, it's a really cool way that we can bring shows to the public. And it's the reason why the Snyder Cut was released. We still need entertainment. And I think we're yes, yeah. a great opportunity to move out of the proscenium and into something really new and original that can last mm -hmm. maybe even longer than the proscenium, considering how important the internet is and how awesome streaming is for Ryan, content. Ryan dropping the mic. Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's one of those difficult things is because um, when the pandemic started and, and people started doing theater on Zoom, there was a lot of like, well, it's not really theater. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot of that sort of thing. Um, and uh, as much as I'm of two minds, I want to get back into the room. I want to get back. I want to feel the audience in the room. I want to I want to have that experience. But I also would love it if we could live stream performances. Mm -hmm. And like I think about how how Canada is a very siloed place. Theater happens in Toronto and theater happens in, say, Vancouver and in Edmonton and all these other places. And we don't see that. <clears throat> but imagine if we could imagine if we could like like buy a digital ticket and be in the room and see what's happening in those places. I, I, I kind of hope that that's something that we, that we actually experiment and can do. And, and that's what I've been thinking about as well is that like, yes, this, this is a challenge that taking something or taking artists that are normally used to, to being um, live and face to face with their audience and now making uh, them go through this challenge of making it digital. Um, can we still have that same impact? Can we still have that same connection? Um, but I also think that, it, like like you said, we can have so many more audiences because of that. Um, and just me having people like have reach out from 
uh, places across Canada or uh, just the fact that they're going to be able to see a show of mine that they yeah. normally, they haven't been able mm-hmm. to see me at a Hamilton Fringe Festival for years. Some mm-hmm. of them. So, um, yeah, I, I think that it's a great way to sh- share material. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, just me appreciating other theaters that have gone virtual, uh, yeah. like, and it, this is a conversation about accessibility as well as a huge thing. So. Yep. Uh, the fact that I could watch some like Stratford productions from the comfort of my own home is is, is incredible. So just and more people being mm-hmm. able to watch it. Yeah, I think there's also a great argument to be made where streaming is succeeding in the time of the pandemic because it's because even before the pandemic, people were not going into theaters as much as they were streaming movies from home. And it's not a, a diss on the medium of movies to say that people want convenience and that they'll they'll access theater and or movies in the easiest way possible and that there's obvious ways to still interact with people on a streaming platform there's donations there's the idea mm-hmm. of the audience affecting the play in real time there's all these cool through the chat there's all these amazing things that street ways that streaming allows you to connect and interact with your audience that mm-hmm. proscenium's don't, and it goes both ways. And I, I, I understand your want to get back in the room. That's an, that's a feeling that you cannot replicate over a screen. That is, it's, it's unique and it's original and it's spontaneous. And I think mm-hmm. if we're going to translate into a post-COVID world, maybe taking that spontaneity and bringing it out of proscenium and into an online environment, it might, mm-hmm. it might help the longevity of certain plays. And also, I, what Hamilton is doing, I find really exciting. I think I've, sure. I've always thought theater and streaming should be more intermerged. I mean, I think there's there's something to be said for for some of that because the the um, you know um, I know the I've seen things that have been recorded in in like in the theater, you know, and you know it's a little bit different than like usually when we set up like we're we're doing our recording of a theatrical play we put the camera at the back of the room and we don't want to show that recording to anybody because it's shit um because it's just like so far back but when i see those ones that are like filmed it's like the three camera setup and yeah it's the audience is in the house that doesn't rob me of wanting to to to, to go and see that show live because mm. I know that I'm having a different experience than those people. Yeah. So it's like they can be complimentary where, um, yes, I could see that, but I also want to buy a ticket to have the opportunity to be in there. It's the same as like, I might really like listening to a particular CD, but I'm also going to go and see them perform that same CD live. Because mm. it's a completely different experience and a different perspective. Um, I, mm-hmm. I agree with that because that, that's a big fear and I've, and I've heard even professors at, at school, like if you, you both, Brian and I both went to York University and did theater studies there, um, devised theater, and um, a lot of professors said that you can't film theater and that theater doesn't read on camera, um, and I, I don't agree with that either because I do think that when you have a different perspective or you have the close-up shot, it's going to be different. Um, than, than just watching it from the from, from the back of the, the stage, as you said. Mm-hmm. I think that that when when people are talking about about theater doesn't read when it's filmed, they're thinking about like putting a camera at the back of the theater. Yeah. Um, but you know, 
I've seen a bunch of things that were recorded with like a three camera setup or more and like that sort of thing. And that does read. I, it, it's also um, last year. Go, sorry, go ahead. Uh, I'm sorry, I'll make it short. Um, what I was going to say is that it's also they're looking at theater that hasn't been adjusted to accommodate for the new medium it's being shown in. So they're looking at a proscenium show being filmed. But it, mm-hmm. especially what we're trying to do with Vagabond is incorporate theater elements in a way that's palatable to a screen being streamed. And I think that's mm. very important. And like Hamilton was a great edit of a proscenium show filmed with three to four to five cameras. But mm-hmm. that's not the same. You know what? I, I believe there's real potential for shows to be designed around the medium. And maybe that sure. maybe COVID's the thing that speeds that process up. I'm not saying COVID's a good thing, but I'm saying that people can't go into theaters right now. <clears throat> yeah. It's just challenging us to use it in a different way. Yeah, it's yeah. a challenge that you need to rise up to. I think that the, the staging is something that's super important, though, because um, when we're doing our shows, when we're presenting things, and we're doing it, say, in Zoom, mm-hmm. and unlike you guys who I'm looking at who are in the same room, um, we're doing like a Zoom show where, where everybody's just in their own little Brady Bunch square, and because so many people do that all day for work, it's hard to say, oh, now this Brady Bunch Square, this is entertainment. And I think that that we have a hard time when we're already experiencing Zoom fatigue. There's nothing that takes us – like we're not entering through the door. We're not entering into a new world when we're just like starting Zoom again. And so that's like the piece that's missing as far as like digital theater goes is like – bringing an audience into a different space. Exactly. And that's what we wanted to, to do is by my, like my sister was working in a job where she said it was like 11 hours of her life of just great video calls. And we wanted to do a, a, a family video call. And she's like, that's the last thing that I want to do for Christmas time or, Easter yes. <laughs> or my birthday. I, I don't want to participate. And I think that that's important, like you said, is how do we make the audience want to go to that and do that virtual experience and not be triggered to their their work fatigue. Um, Right. Yeah, maybe Ryan can talk about how he's challenging that, of doing the the theater elements as well in film. I I, I don't know. I understand what you mean, Phil. I've seen a lot of um, uh, theater productions that, they had too many screens going on on the same screen and it relied so much on the online element that it depersonalized it and the, and whatever SFX, I guess you can call them SFX elements that were added in seemed superficial. Um, mm-hmm. It made me conclude that maybe simplifying the process is the best way to do it. And just focusing on having a good theater show first that you present cleanly without online hiccups without delay or lag and in a way that is as manual as possible so that it can be low tech and not strain the internet and not look, in my opinion, tacky, like look like a theater show, just like you're just sitting in a different seat and maybe utilizing the ability to block in a different way so that it just doesn't feel like you're watching a proscenium show. And yeah, it's tough. It, it's tough, and it's something we're all going to have to adjust to. I hope for not longer, for not much longer. But maybe, yeah. I mean, I think we all hope not for much longer, and that's that's the thing. Is the uh, you know, there's been 
so much. And I'm always impressed when I talk to people about about the the thing that they've learned how to do. Mm. Like suddenly somebody who a year ago or a year and a half ago would have said, listen, I don't know how to do anything online. And suddenly they're like, now they're live streaming and now they're they're like doing stuff on the web in in a way that they can convince themselves previously they'd never be able to do. Absolutely. And now they're, they've bought a new webcam, a new computer, and they're like doing it like suddenly doing like a three camera setup that they set up in their bedroom somehow, which is pretty impressive. That is impressive. Wow. That's the thing of using this time to challenge ourselves to, to get better at things and, and uh, improve our skills because, this isn't wasted time. And I think that getting new hobbies or in, improving our professional career, it's like I know how it, people can feel guilty about working on projects right now. But I think that it's a way to, uh, I don't know, make us all feel connected. And there's real issues that need to be talked about other than COVID as well right now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and that's what I'm interested to see is how many, how many of the, these productions are going to be about COVID and how many are, are not. And uh, I do feel like it, it is important to talk about. And uh, I, I'm excited to see the, the perspectives that everybody takes for it. Um, I do have a bit of a fear that like in our first post-COVID fringe festival, that when we're in the theater, that it's just going to be a bunch of one person shows about the pandemic. Preach. And I, I don't want to see that. Preach. I just don't. Yeah. I, I understand the urge, but you know what? I think by that point, we're all just going to be like, look, can we just pretend that never happened? I'm just going to go in the block, block it out. Like what, what happened for the past year? I, I don't, I don't even know. I don't know. Let's just ignore that. Let's just move forward. It's also, it's also um, important to note, COVID exacerbated a lot of previous existing issues that might not be talked about, mm-hmm. but it sped up a lot of bad trends in our society that maybe need to be talked about. But in the other, on the other hand, we did, it did, because theaters were closed, it forced theaters to, to contend with those issues in a way that they had always been able to say, oh, we can't deal with that right now. It's going to take too much time. And we're in the middle of producing because they're always in the middle of producing. Mm-hmm. But now, like, they're off the treadmill of, of producing. And you can have a conversation about the way that you've treated your Black, Indigenous, and people of color in, in the history of your company and and really contend with that and, like, make a commitment to move forward and just know that we saw you make those commitments early on and we remember so that if you renege on those, we'll remember that too. That's a great point. It's a, it's a great point and it's an opportunity to speak on issues that really need to be spoken on. And mm-hmm. it, I think our show is trying to speak on issues that are exacerbated by COVID, but not necessarily directly influenced by it. And yeah, and there's a whole bunch of issues like that. And I hope that, I, I agree, I hope that theater doesn't fixate on a moment in time when we can be speaking on mm-hmm. issues that help us move forward. Now, one thing I would like to, to ask you guys about, and, and this is, the, uh, Ryan, you and I haven't even spoken about this kind of thing, is I'm always fascinated by people's theater origin stories. Like, why did you choose to go into theater? I know that you both went to school at York together. Um, what was it about what drew you to theater? What took you to York? And like, what's that? What is that journey? I'm going to let Hamiltonian start it off here. Uh, my, my 
journey to theater was interesting. It, uh, I, I started with dance at first. Um, I was in a dance company at one point when I was in my youth. So up until I was like 16, 17 years old. Um, and then I went to the theater Aquarius program. So that, that was like, if you speak to most Hamilton youth that go to theater school, they participated in the theater Aquarius like youth program. Um, so we did a couple of productions. I was in Rent when I was way too young. I think I was like 16 years old playing a stripper. Out of, out of curiosity, just so that we know how inappropriate it was for you, for you to be in that play, what show were you, what character were you? Were you? Maureen? No, I wasn't Maureen. And I was one of the, the supporting like ensemble roles, but I, I, okay. I played, uh, you know, the, I had no clue. The, the lesbian lover of, but got her in trouble for flirting. She's like, no, yes, she yes. flirting, Maureen, before that song. Um, so I was in all of those characters. And then uh, mm-hmm. I was the hobo who beat up and did all of the physical scenes. I was one of the dancers in the chorus. So it was just all of that, those things. Um, <laughs> and then we were in Hives in High School Musical as one of the head cheerleaders. And as much as those musicals were... were kind of silly they prepared me to do more auditions and things like that and I think I realized that I didn't really a like singing or b have a voice but I enjoyed being on stage and I and I always had people come up to me after those shows saying I loved watching you on that in the in the show and your part was fantastic and it was just so funny to get compliments when I was not a lead role ever um <laughs> And so then after that, I guess I, I just fell in love with those, those different, like more traditional theater uh, roles. And then um, once I got into the, the whole devised theater category where I saw that you could do movement and do physicality and, and character development and do storytelling all, all together and not have to sing, that was when I was like, this is my, this is my place. Can I ask you about what, what, how did you discover devised theater? How did you find yourself in, in that area of theater? Because a lot of people will just go through the, a program and, and get to the, oh, yes, I'm just going to learn how to read a script and act that way. What, what drew you to the devised theater? I thought devised theater was always so interesting because we would write, direct, produce, perform, create all of our own original work which I found so much more interesting in that sense where instead of just being like, I think that actors are incredible and actors that can take a script and bring it to life are incredible and talented people. Um, But I also think that there's something that comes from being an actor who writes your own work and, and does the research to create the play. You do the grunt work, you see like your heart and soul and you bleed and you cry and, and you, really get into it and then you perform that original work it just feels something like something more original and like i don't know it just gets you going in a different way i guess i get that uh and of course once you once you finish the program you you you've continued to to create theater yeah, so I did the device theater program and then after i finished the device theater program i started to do um, the master's class with Erica Backdorf at, at York, but it was a solo theater creation class. Um, so instead of just being done, I, 
I felt like I still wanted to learn how to create solo shows because I felt like there was something so challenging of just being there by by yourself on stage. Like I know that you have that experience as, as well of just kind of going up there and, and, and it all being on you and, and, and if the audience enjoys it or not, it's all on your shoulders. Oh yeah, it um, is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, I felt like that was something that I was kept being drawn to. Uh, so I went and I did that um, after after graduation. Um, and that led into me doing a couple solo shows. So I did one at the Array Space and then um, another one at Theater Aquarius at the Junction. Um, and then another one at the Gallery Series at um, uh, the Factory Media Center in Hamilton. So it's been around all in Hamilton and then some in Toronto. Um, yeah. So creating solo shows, it has been interesting. So just doing those, those projects, I do feel like it is a, it's a, a great way to connect with an audience. And um, I do a lot of more serious and personal subject matter. So it is very vulnerable, but uh, mm-hmm. it's just been been great to, to open up because I do find that sometimes I can't connect with people one-on-one um like it makes me so awkward and just talking makes me awkward <laughs> but then when I get to go in and do an actual performance I feel like I leave connected with the, like that that group of audience members at that time mm. as, as a dramaturg that was especially true in for Eden her latest show was very interactive with the audience and a very powerful question now, before you, was there a show, had you seen a solo show that made you say, I want to do that? Okay, well, oh, there was a, a lot of solo shows that I see that are like performance artists that I, I thought were, were crazy. Um, and... As I said, um, here, one second. Sorry, Bosco. Bosco's freaking out. So as I said, how I was trained by, um, by Erica Backdoor. So, so she, she is the person who did a lot of the mentorships out of York University. Um, and just seeing the, the shows that she, that she's done. Um, yeah, so... What, what I was referring to was the, the solo artist that, that I saw um, who, I guess I'm inspired by, by, by Erica Bashworth because she does performances that are solo work, but then sometimes she collaborates with other artists as well. Um, so the one performance that I saw that kind of triggered me to, to have a little bit of a mental breakdown, but in a good way, um, was one that she did that was called The Red Horse is Leaving. Mm-hmm. And she opens up about her mother's own mental illness and what it was like being raised by her mother and the love that they shared for each other, but then also the uh, the, the negative impact that it had on her throughout her life after that. Um, and her mother was, in real life, was an incredible um, experimental artist. So having those visual elements and the interaction that she had with the audience. And she painted a, a piece of art in front of the audience during the performance and then had the audience bid on the piece of art to, to determine the value that, of yeah. the piece of art. 
And it was just like so many different moments throughout the one piece. And I yeah. just thought it was like, why I'm on an emotional roller coaster. And I, and I could feel that she was also on that journey with the audience as well. So after that, I think that it changed my perspective of what a theater piece could be. And then I really just wanted to explore that myself. Uh, Did you feel after performing a, your solo show for the first time that um, part of the allure of that is is to see an audience react in an emotional way to what you've done and to sort of you can sort of sit back afterwards and be like, that was all me. I mean, there's a little bit of a, an arrogance to it, but like. I did that. What's the difference between arrogance and pride? Like, <laughs> very little. Very little. Uh, I feel like. I would be lying to say that I don't enjoy it a little bit when I see an audience member have a reaction and walk away feeling something. And it's so like, for example, when I did one show that was called uh, A Story for Eden, and this was about my own personal experience of going through and having an abortion and having that loss and keeping it a secret for so long and then sharing the, the, the story. And I, I did that one as an interactive installation so the audience could rummage through my bedroom and read my uh, diary entries and watch the videos and piece the story together. And then on the way out, they actually see a picture of me uh, at the abortion clinic because my asshole boyfriend at the time was in the film department and he thought that it would be interesting to take a picture of me on the bed uh, in the hospital robe. Um, and I thought that he had lost his mind and we weren't, we stopped dating after that. But uh, I was all, after that, I realized that I was thankful that he documented that moment because I got to share it in the, in the, the piece. Mm. And um, at the end, they had, they, the audience could read a final uh, diary entry and I had a few people run, running to the bathroom at the end of it because they they just, just didn't want to be seen crying at, in, in the installation <laughs> and mm -hmm. I, I was approached after by some people that just said thank you for sharing your story and um, for your vulnerability is the word that the audience members like to say um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's really just a uh, it's a great, great experience that that somebody can be moved like, to, to tears. I suppose, mm -hmm. um, yeah. There was an audience. yeah. I always found that there was that moment when you re when like you just sort of the audience is your it's you taking them on the journey, and especially if you wrote it, like it's it's your words taking them on that journey, and they start at one place and they go somewhere they didn't expect. There's there's a pride to that, and there's a there's a real it's. It's an addictive feeling, really. I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I, the, the, one, the one thing I loved about that for Eden, what she's discussing, and there was an audience member who was so moved by the piece, he did like Reiki meditation. I'm, I'm sure that, I'm not sure if that's hmm. the right word, but he meditated with the performer. And huh. I love that intimacy. Okay, so he, he approached wow. me during the piece and asked if he could perform Reiki on me while I was in the middle of the production. Uh, during one of the, the monologues and uh, because it was I was in character moving around the installation throughout the performance mm -hmm. character so 
when he offered me that, you know how they always say for you have to like you need to just accept what's put out there. So mm-hmm. when he offered me to have that Reiki experience in the middle of the the performance, I said yes. So we sat there and he he, he had that, that. He manipulated her chakra. Yeah, it was, it was so mm-hmm. intimate. I can't describe to mm-hmm. you like as a director seeing that vision how intimate mm-hmm. and personal it was, mm-hmm. but also how powerful. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, Ryan, just to, to, to sort of like turn some of this uh, spotlight on you a little bit. Okay. Um, your, I, I don't know your theater origin story, and I would love to know um, what, what it is that drew you to theater. I mean, I, I, isn't it like Batman where like the more mysterious it is, the more you like it? <laughs> I mean, maybe, but for the purposes of this podcast, I really want to know. Okay. Um. I actually got rejected from York. I was in theater. I did music theater all throughout high school, musical after musical after musical. In private school before that, me and my brother were actually Aladdin and Jafar in the grade eight musical. Um, it was great. Uh, and then at, in high school, a lot of musicals. Uh, it is, but it's, it is problematic now. But we were both really good performers back then. Um, and then basically what ended up happening was I got rejected from York once at, for the acting conservatory and I got really pissed. I can't describe to you how angry I was. They accepted me for psychology and rejected me for what I loved and I hated it. So what ended up happening is I got so angry I rejected them and then I auditioned for everything under the sun the next year. I, I did audition for Ryerson where they said don't like you know how that Ryerson has all these rules with their auditions, like really stringent audition rules. Um, I broke every single one of them and got in, <laughs> and got in, on purpose and got in hmm. and got accepted to York as well. But because I was so angry, they rejected me the first time. I accepted them the second time. I saw it as a way, inspiration for me to use my nervous energy in a positive way. Hmm. hmm. What ended up happening is that I met Chelsea on the first day of our orientation. She was the first person I talked to. It's true. Ryan and I were in the uh, the course choosing and like seminar, the same one, and we sat beside each other and we we were in the same acting class in first year uh, with Michael Piscitelli and all those great people. Yeah. So, hmm. yeah, so um, uh, Chelsea was Chelsea's been there since the beginning. She entered Devise Theater with me. Um, uh, I, Where does the passion for theater come from? That's a good question. It started off as selfish because I was bullied a lot and I wanted to show people that I had value on stage. Hmm. And then it developed into me liking creating my own shit from Devise Theater and really loving the feeling of manifesting something on stage. And the company I made with Chelsea out of school and all the work I've done with her since has helped me realize that I love site specific work. Um, I love breaking shows out of a proscenium. I love being mm-hmm. community based, which is something that glass wall does a lot. So Chelsea and I end up working a lot mm-hmm. together. I love incorporating technical elements into pieces. Um, and I learned that all in New York. Chelsea and I worked a lot in, I worked with Chelsea a lot in developing my aesthetic. Even the shadow art that we're doing 
in this show started in a show that Chelsea and I did together where I fell in love with the mm. aesthetic and love mm. its ability to create modern myths and fables and almost anthropomorphized characters and silhouettes. Mm. And I realized that there's something, you're right, there is something addictive uh, about creation. But mm. I don't think it's selfish. I think maybe that's the wrong way. I think it's like when you want to be a nurse. It's like you're eager to share what you have to offer in your brain mm -hmm. or what you have to offer mm. the specific the specific industry. And yeah. And I really fell in love with okay, Canadian theater has been struggling to find its identity in the proscenium world, maybe in a post-proscenium world, in a new modern theater world we can get enough Canadian artists together to make some really mm. cool local theater about the communities we're in. Like mm. you look at Ireland, they have the cripple of Inishman. They have all these plays about their community. You look at London, they have all these plays about their communities. And you look at Canada and you want more of that. I know that they exist. There's many of them, but they're, they're modern and we need to create them. And I want to create. Them. Let's, let's, let's face it. That one of the problems that Canada has is, is we've psychologically convinced ourselves as a people that um, we are never, we could never be as interesting as Americans. Yes. So we create shows that are sort of like apologizing because we're not as interesting as Americans, or we write shows pretending that we're Americans. That's really interesting that you say that because when I did a workshop up in Port Severn, up in um, Perry Sound, and we, the, the premise of the show was talking about how U.S. Americans steal Canadian music talent and band talent. And it was a Cripple of Inishman script that we revamped for a Canadian perspective, where instead of musicians leaving Ireland and artists and, and talent leaving Ireland, it was talent leaving Canada. And I hope we find that identity. Muted. I was muted. <laughs> um, uh, this is like that's the phrase of the entire pandemic. Right. Um, there's there's that 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 idea that that um, in in Canada, you know, we create this stuff, and the only time we're like we can accept this person as a celebrity if they went to America, mm. became a celebrity in America, and then we suddenly claim them and we celebrate them. But we have all this homegrown talent, and for the most part, we're like. Uh, I don't pay attention to Canadian anything. Yeah, it's a big problem in Toronto, especially. When I was working with all the musicians on the Gorilla Marching Band shows, they would lament about all the talent. Local talent, even that they knew, would left to play as um, uh, hired guns for big shows in the mm -hmm. U.S. It's mm -hmm. a big problem. Or, yeah, yeah. People say that, yeah. that there, there isn't anything coming out of, of the Canadian theater, but then all of them, they do want it. They want to celebrate the other successes when they see them. So it's like, oh my goodness, I watched Pin's Convenience. And now they they think that they know so much about the work that's coming out of Canada. And it's like, you need to, mm -hmm. there, there's so many different things that are out there. I agree. But. Well, it's funny because I remember years ago, um, uh, uh, Howard Sherman, who used to run the American Theater Wing, um, he posted a few years ago, just like, okay, so I know a bunch of Irish playwrights. I know a bunch of English playwrights. Um, I know a bunch of, you know, we know some French playwrights. Who are 
the Canadian playwrights. They're right there. We know they have theater. What What's happening there? And it was interesting because a lot of people who were Americans who follow him were like, oh, right. They must have something, mm-hmm. you know, and we're and 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 we're. You know, we we again, we ignore stuff that's Canadian until it's successful enough for us to not ignore it anymore. Precisely. You can look at Come From Away. You can look at Justin Bieber, Nickelback. You can look through multiple mediums. You can look at film. You can look at The Boys, which is all filmed in Toronto. Mm-hmm. You can look at a whole bunch of mediums. And yeah, I think my passion comes from I like the underdog story. And I really want to make Canadian theater, but I am also greedy and want to see messages that I feel important. I really do want to put them on stage. I feel people, mm. I, and it's not a selfish thing. I just want people to resonate with some messages, maybe learn something new. Maybe they teach me something by me performing for them. Yeah. I do think that, you know, it's not selfish because if you want to put ideas that you're passionate about on stage, that like, what else is, what else? Like, if you're not passionate about something, it, people will be so bored watching it. You have to be passionate about the thing that you're putting on stage, especially if you're creating it yourself. What Canadians are passionate about is a great idea. Oh, cool. And maybe finding out what Canadians are passionate about is a great idea, you know? Like, on yeah. But, you know, it's, it's interesting because the idea of, like, what are Canadians passionate about? In Canada, the things that, that people in Toronto are passionate about might be different than what people in Barrie are passionate about. Mm-hmm. There's no universal Canadian story, just like there's no universal American story, yeah. even though we have those. Um, there's, the, I, there's the story of how um, when Fiddler on the Roof was performed in China, the the, the people watching it were like, oh, it's a it's a story about being Chinese. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, no matter because the story is so there's something about creating something so specific that it speaks to everybody. But if you tried to speak to everybody, nobody would care because yeah. it was too generic. Yeah. The more specific you get, the more people can actually relate to it. But that's definitely something that I learned uh, through doing some of those solo shows is that the moments that people came up to me to, to talk about were the most personal moments that I decided to share because when you, mm-hmm. when you reveal that amount, like that, like that, like those, those personal moments, it's like, Oh yeah, I a hundred percent have had that experience as well. Um, it, it, it's it, the human experience is so universal. Right. And mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's almost like, it's almost like, making a story human makes it more relatable and local stories mm-hmm. I find the most human. Yeah. But of, of talking about of pretending to be American and things like that, that's something that we see all the time in the television and film yeah. industry and, and working around and uh, not too, like about a year or two ago, I was doing background work of working as an extra and we would play the game of spot of, of, the, the, find the police car that says and like the New York NYPD, NYPD, <laughs> and everything like that because it's like every time it was pretending to be in the states and in the states of Toronto. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but that's something that I feel like is going to be the a strength of of Vagabond is that uh, we are we're not trying to hide the locations that we're filming of it being Hamilton. We're going to be highlighting mm-hmm. those those locations. So mm-hmm. uh, one place that we've already filmed that is the Peak. So that's like the lookout point. Like you can see all of Dundas and Hamilton. 
Um, so it's 100% recognizable. So when the audience watches that, they're going to know exactly where you are as both locals. So it's mm. not them. Um, we're not going to try to hide that and in, in, in strip it from, it, from its core, I guess. Yeah, it really is a tale of two cities, and it's really about <laughs> highlighting how local it is. And um, uh, we had a great we had a great time collecting footage. It was, it was fantastic work. Now you alluded to uh, there being shadow work in 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 this production. Tell me a little bit about about devising uh, the shadows and how how that's going to be used within the production. Um, the premise of the piece is that it's two stories that over a camp that over a scene of connection merge together into one. So we have each story interweaving, but being one is being told in front of the shadow screen and one is being told behind it. And then they merge at the campfire. But how, how it's working practically uh, is that there's the, the, the white screen like behind and then, um, We'll be posting some promotional images. We already have some some work going for that. But um, how it works is that there's a stencil that's behind, and the the person's manipulating the stencil, and the light projects projects onto it. And then in front of us, you can actually uh, play with the perspective of the size of it, of making it like large or small. Uh, hmm. And we're gonna have the close-ups of the shadow yeah. art. But simply enough, we we have these puppets that the characters can interact with and we're just building the shadow art. Yeah. Um, hmm. But we're, we're taking those live moments of where we're filming. So like, for example, you can take the, the, the set location of we're filming at a house. So you can take the actual shot of the house and then you can transform that into shadow art. Yeah. Uh, hmm. So it's, interesting of playing with that perspective and everything of, of going from the, the film shot to the shadow art shot and a lot of what's connecting the two environments is nature so we want to do a lot of cool transitions where we see the hamilton cliffside and then it in real video recording with characters interacting with it and then it turns into a stencil of that background and then transitions hmm. into the shadow world hmm. we want to do a lot of interplay between those two worlds and we really want to take advantage of the fact that when we're streaming there is one camera angle that is seeing the entire mm. thing so entrances mm. and exits into the shadow world are very easy to do because mm. there's only one nice. screen um this screen behind us actually is the one we're using so mm. you back project onto it and we can use both and we can use it for both the real recordings and the footage that Chelsea mm. has collected, and we use mm. it to back project the shadow art. So it's what makes mm. this theatrical is um, right. it's being still being performed only using a screen as well. Right. And we have a lot of mm. cool ideas of transitions to make that really cool, really theatrical. Hmm. Nice. Nice. Now, as I start to draw uh, to the end of our time together, um, one of the questions that I've been asking uh, since the pandemic started is is a question about joy, because we've all had our moments in this entire pandemic. Um, and so we could all use a little bit of joy. And I think it's helpful to hear what gives other people joy. For So for each of you, what's been giving you joy lately? So my partner and I, can I, can I am I allowed to? 
talk about multiple things that bring you joy? Absolutely. Okay, so we we've been um, so through COVID. I moved in with my partner. Um, so it was a month or two before COVID. So we're not lumped into that category of of COVID relationships. Good on good on us. Um, we adopted our dog from um, Animal House, Jamaica. So that's been incredible of just having that that amazing dog to take care of and and love. Um, and we started an, like a herb garden and growing things from that, that we would normally buy from the supermarket. So I learned how to make chai, like grow chives and red peppers and all of those things. So yeah, just doing those to, to get happy. I'm sorry, I'm playing with her dog. Um, yes, <laughs> Ryan is just playing with the, with the dog because I've also bring him joy. Um, there you go. I think for COVID, I think I really became closer to my family, especially over Zoom. Um, my mother actually, she had a COVID scare early in the year. She had an unrelated condition that had COVID symptoms and the entire family rallied around her. And ever since then, the joy, we had a great Christmas together, even though there was Zoom involved. It's about finding the little moments with my family. It's been about cooking, a lot of cooking. Mm. Um, mm. A lot of soups, a lot of really hearty soups, um, and getting into getting back into show creation has been a big part of my joy, as well. Mm. And knowing that, despite all the negativity around me and the and the plague and pestilence, that I still have a roof over my head. I'm still healthy. I'm still working. I still have an amazing support system. I still have friends that live really close to me that are in my bubble that I can see. I live alone. I can still work and be safe. It's It, it really is the little things at this point because there's mm. no big things going on. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you both. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for, for talking with me this evening. Yeah. I want to know what's bringing you joy. Yeah, what's bringing you joy. Okay. Okay. So what's bringing me joy? Uh, number one, uh, last November, like long before, like, a, you know, months before COVID, I, I met my girlfriend. And um, the thing that has been wonderful about, about this whole situation is it forced us into a bubble of, of intimacy, which, and made us really comfortable with each other, got us really close in a more accelerated fashion than we probably would have if we um, we're still going out on dates and things like that. There, that would have extended the period of time that it took for us to get as as close as we became. So the the great joy for me of this whole thing has been um, um, the closeness uh, with with Melanie and how um, and how uh, supportive of each other we've been. So that's the great joy for Good me. Good for you, man. Good for you. That's awesome. Thank you. I love it. All right. I'll talk to you soon, guys. Have a nice night, man. Thank you so much for bringing us on.